Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? When he's not doubling as Batman, my guest today describes himself as a pirate. And after training in drums and percussion, he spent 15 years performing with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and was even reviewed in the New York Times as a triangle player that turned the orchestra white hot. He's also played in the pit of various West End shows in London. But Mark also beats a different drum as a self-confessed, furious networker, working his way through creative digital marketing and events management. Put all that together, hand it to, say, Tom Cruise behind his bar in Cocktail, and you get Mark Walmsley, founder of the Arts and Culture Network. Currently, there's an average of 300 new members a day joining a global community that's 80,000 strong, and Mark's mission is to drive connections. He's also interested in fractional philanthropy, taking a percentage of membership fees to support initiatives in underdeveloped communities, for example, supporting a dance group for homeless children based in Uganda. In amongst all this, I'm also pretty sure he wants to be a pop master. Hello, Mark, and welcome to Cannot Save Us. Thank you so much, Paula. That's a lovely introduction. Thank you. I do hope you'll copy and paste that and send it to me. I, I, I will do. I will do, and and uh, and it will and it will be um, part of your episode page too. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, so, Mark, I wondered whether we could wind back to when you first discovered the drums and why drumming. Wow. Um, that'll take us back the best part of 60 years. Um, <laughs> I used to turn saucepans upside down and put them on my bed and would then bash the hell out of them with my mother's uh, wooden spoons when I was six. So when I was seven, my mum and dad decided perhaps he should have some drum lessons and perhaps they should be out of home. Um, so um, I did. I started... Uh, one-to-one lessons with a, a, a young chap who at the time was in the uh, Philharmonia Orchestra. And um, that led to youth orchestras. And eventually, I, my teacher at the time suggested I um, audition at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And reading up on it at the time, it, I realised that only only three of the 50 applicants typically would be accepted each year. So I didn't hold up um, an awful lot of of hope, but um, I must have wheedled it some way, and and I went to the Guildhall in 1982, and I did 82 to 86, and loved it. Um, it was it was great. Towards the end of my student days, I, I was starting to pick up some work, which was great. And um, the principal at the time, a lovely chap called Leslie East, said, "Well, look, the reason you're here is to is to find." work and if you're already getting it then you can take some time off to do it so I was very fortunate then and that's about when I started freelancing in the CBSO and doing some shows so yeah that's that's how it all started yeah okay so bashing hell out of saucepan pots and uh just for listeners uh lucky enough to have international listeners uh it's worth highlighting the Guildhall school of music and drama is still ranked number one in arts drama and music by the complete university guide for 2024 so this really was a prestigious gateway for you wasn't it i was very fortunate um, I made the most of it. I became the social secretary of the student union, um, organised a few concerts and managed to persuade Nat West around the corner to sponsor them while we were all at college. And I also read um, Cain and Abel by Geoffrey Archer during that time and suddenly decided I rather like the appeal of the business side of music and entertainment as much as performing. So I set up a music agency while I was at college 
Um, and that grew to be quite a large event company doing all the entertainment at Harrods, for example. And I took the first corporate party into the dome in 2000. And so life after college was a kind of balance between teaching, playing professionally and booking other people onto jobs. Yeah, it's really interesting because you really have always straddled um, your artist life with your business life, Um, you know, as you say, even commencing during your studies at college. And a portfolio career, of course, is always aligned with um, entrepreneurs, um, which is also aligned with the ability, if you like, to take risk. And I wondered how natural perhaps risk is to you, um, be it from innovating business ideas, creative marketing, or performance and stage fright? That's a great question. Um, I spend a lot of time now uh, mentoring young people wanting to try and either start their own businesses or or, uh, get a foothold in the creative industries. And I was very fortunate in that I was able to so that as one activity would grow in its success, I could rein back on the previous one, if that makes sense. So it was rather a, the end result was a smoother line. But um, yeah, it's I've never been afraid of, of taking risks, but I think I've been fortunate in that, um, for example, as, the, as my music agency started to develop, I was able to do less teaching. Um, and as my playing career um, advanced, I was able to do um less of, of other things so i've been very fortunate but i do advise people not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and and start from zero if they can avoid it because as we know 8 out of 10 startups may not see their second birthday so it's it's worth wherever possible retaining some capacity to pay the bills so that um so that you you've got a bit more time and space to to test and learn with a with a new business idea. Yes, it is often um, a layer cake approach, isn't it? Um, especially for artists and those that work in the creative industries. Um, surviving is by no means easy. Um, artists aren't treated to lifelong secure contracts. Um, and I wondered, Mark, In these really exceptional times, when we think about sustained cuts to the arts, especially in education from schools all the way through to universities for the last 10 years, when we think about Brexit introducing even more restrictions uh, for artists to be able to engage with Europe and tour uh, easily, and then, of course, along comes the pandemic, is pretty incredible, isn't it, in terms of how artists are managing to survive. And I wondered if this is actually really core to the arts and culture network, because, of course, connections are part of creative survival. Exactly. I I do some lecturing at local colleges on the future of work. Um, and how important networking and self-promotion and having a sense of one's own brand identity in inverted commas is becoming increasingly important. Um, Our grandparents had a job for life in the same company if they wanted it, typically. My grandparents spent the whole of their lives working in the same cotton mill in Lancashire. Um, My grandparents, my parents, on the other hand, probably did decades at the same company, but we're currently averaging 4.1 years at the same company in full time in full employment. So it doesn't take a genius to track the trajectory of that and that we are increasingly being required to have several sources of income, portfolio careers and freelancing. And it's especially the case in the creative industries and in the arts and culture world as well. So one of the things I think that I can't remember who coined the phrase, but these days your network is your net worth because um, recruitment agencies only only fill 85% of published um, roles. So no, 15%, sorry. <laughs> recruitment companies only fill around 15% of, of advertised uh, vacancies. So it, it rather helps if you've got 
um, a kind of army of part-time salespeople out there keeping an eye and an ear open for for opportunities for you. And and that's where the Arts and Culture Network was was effectively conceived in wanting to provide uh, people all over the world with opportunities to connect, start conversations and seek out opportunities for collaboration. And we've had some wonderful success stories of exactly that happening from somebody being commissioned to do six abstract art pieces of art to somebody getting hired during one of our calls even. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's always very pleasing to, to when I hear those success stories and, and realise that that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't got everyone together in the way that I have. Yeah, and I wondered whether um, putting a focus um, back on music at the moment within the Arts and Culture Network, whether you're witness now to really interesting conversations, maybe debates, maybe even growing activism, advocacy, um, because there are such immense pressures uh, now on the arts. Musicians are especially struggling. Um, since Brexit, um, the Musicians' Union has noted that uh, 32% less now uh, in terms of British performers playing festivals across Europe. And actually, similarly, a loss with Europeans coming to play our festivals, so a kind of loss with cultural exchange both ways. Um, and I'm sure you're, you know, you're aware of uh, fury um, uh, around these issues. Elton John has been especially vocal. Um, he's, he's spoken about the crucifying impact of red tape today on um, touring performers in particular. And I'm wondering if you're hearing interesting and even innovative responses, Mark, to how musicians are galvanising to survive these constraints. Yes, I think I'm, I'm all, I always approach challenges with a kind of positive um, attitude. And I think, um, and I've seen it several times in, in the past where apparent disasters have provided opportunities for people. I think one of the things that, one of the great things about something like Spotify is that it gives people access to discovering new music that they would largely, that we pro they probably wouldn't have even come across in the past, um, which is a plus. The downside, of course, is the business model is, is, is steeped terribly in the, in the platform and the publisher's interest financially rather than the artist's. But um, there is, I think somebody coined the phrase recently that in order to make a reasonable living as a musician, especially if you're a singer-songwriter, for example, um, you probably only need 5,000 dedicated fans to make that that work um we, we don't all need to be famous for everybody i think um you know we, we can't all, there's only room for one or two taylor swifts out there so um and indeed elton john um bless him but i think it's it's i think it what it's int rather interestingly done in my experience is it's forced people to go a bit closer to home and develop their own following and audience and support locally uh, and within their existing networks so but then things have changed so much over the last 30 years even because it used to be the case that a rock band would tour to promote sales of an album now it's the other way around um nine inch nails i think were the first large band to give away their new album if you bought a ticket for their concert so it's it's changing enormously in that respect but it's perhaps forcing it's a bit of a forest fire as well i guess but it's it's forcing um artists to to seek out new ways of being perceived as special and different and innovative um and and that's that's one of the things that we do for some of our members is is a almost like a for those who are running their own small businesses or small operations or or freelancing as entrepreneurs or as artists is to help um, those members establish what makes them different, better and remarkable so that they are noticed, remembered and talked about a bit more. And we've seen some success in that as well. And 
it's it yeah it's a, a challenge but i'm i kind of i don't consider myself to be an expert in any of the art forms that are represented across my network i often say it's everything from architects to zither players and um, my job is really not to be that knowledgeable person it's just to provide an environment in which other great artists and enthusiastic supporters of the arts um, and of course service providers who support those the industry all get a chance to meet um, and connect and create those connections and and that's the that's that's to date that's been the the drive i've got a bit of a decade end of decade mission going on a bit like jfk um i'd like the arts and culture network to become a global arts and culture support foundation where in which it donates at least half of the membership revenue to worthy causes nominated by the the, um, the subscribers themselves and voted on, hence the fractional philanthropy idea, um, that your £10 actually might not, it's probably three cups of coffee in the high street, but actually when it joins all the other £10, um, then it, it we can start making um, a real difference, but do so without all of that red tape. Um, you know, sadly, the the artists and the organisations who deserve and need financial support the most are f- often the least well equipped to apply for it and to to carry the burden of evaluation reporting to, so that they don't have to give the money back. So I want it to be free of that. Um, it won't be huge amounts. I won't be saving opera companies, I'm afraid, but it might be a guitar for your unemployed neighbour. It might be, as you say, the street dance crew in Kampala, or it could be a, a festival of Inuit art in Northern Canada. It, it's entirely up to the members. It's a, a proper democracy in that respect. And by the end of the decade, we should have over 2,000 um, subscribers based on current growth rates, which means we'll be making 10 to 15,000 pounds available every month for those nominated causes. Yeah, and it's a really um, important reminder, isn't it, of how the arts has such a significant role in terms of social impact. Um, you know, with the examples you just gave, even if it's one guitar for an unemployed neighbour, but that can actually springboard such a huge difference in that person's life. And the arts and social impact um, seems to be so often underestimated or it feels underestimated in the context of the current government because of course the cuts are so deep and so severe um what what can you see happening perhaps mark um even if it's emerging from the network itself in terms of how artists start to organize themselves perhaps differently um whether it's um elevating their roles in terms of social impact but also perhaps understand understanding um the importance really of marketing because of course that's so often a fight because there's not always the time for every role in your own small business. Yes. I, uh, I was having a conversation with a member recently who said she probably spent half, half her working week marketing to get more of the work that she really wants to do. Um, it is a challenge. I have a philosophy called minimalist marketing, which was inspired by the marketing philosopher, Seth Godin, for whom I used to organize meetups in London And he said at an event um, that I was attending, find your smallest viable audience and become the best option for it. And I had to write that down really quite quickly. And it's changed the way that I approach um, marketing since then. So minimalist marketing is effectively a, a program or a workshop that I offer that helps people focus their available resources of energy, money and time where it's going to have the biggest impact. Um, most of us feel as though we've got to be all over the place with all with lots of different things um, for lots of different audiences, and there simply isn't time to do it. So um, that that workshop that workshop's proving quite effective at helping people decide on one product or service, one target audience, and one channel to use um, with which to reach those people. So, and for us, that's LinkedIn because um, I've seen a huge in, increase in the number of people in our 
in our industry embracing LinkedIn. That's been backed up by the new connections that I see who've got very few connections so far. It's no longer perceived as just a job in a bank. It, it's it's starting to to become one of those essential networking vehicles for for those in across all industries, but especially more so in ours because typically we've got some some catching up to do. But if I could advise anybody who was trying to raise awareness, and that's where most of us get stuck, um, choose one very specific product or service that you offer. Um, decide what is the smallest viable audience for that and stick to one channel, the one that you already have the greatest footprint in. And um, and then the idea around that workshop is that you set targets for that um, and you don't add anything to any of those buckets until you've hit the target. And then you can add a further product or an additional audience. So for example, if you were, a, one of our members is doing this actually, she's, um, She's an artist, but we now describe her as an oceanic artist because she's inspired by rivers, the sea and oceans, and all of her work is abstract and with that at its heart. And um, so she now focuses on on people who have a fascination for oceans. Um, to the exp- and that's not to the exclusion of any inbound inquiry that she might get, but it's certainly... Um, when she's spending her own time, energy, or money, that's where she's. That's that's route one for her, and so focus is 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 one of the ways in in, in making sure that you're getting the biggest bang for your buck in ter- in in marketing would, would be my advice. Yeah, it, it certainly points to the importance of of definition, and perhaps that points us to pirates. Hmm. Pirates. Um, there is a wonderful book by my friend and fellow, he's a member of our network, um, Sam Conniff, and it's called Be More Pirate. And I, re- I listened to him reading it a few years ago, and it's a romp through the golden age of piracy between about 1680 and 1720. And a, the realization that most of the things that we think we know about pirates was provided to us either by Walt Disney or Robert Louis Stevenson, when in fact it was very different from that fictional reality in that the 1,500 pirates effectively kept four national navies on the run for 40 years. And so how did they do it? And they did it by scaling and not growing. They created the first globally, globally recognized logo. Um, something like 60% of pirates in the golden age were liberated slaves. They were stealing from thieves and they encouraged same sex relationships aboard the the ships and nobody ever walked the plank. So uh, the second half of Sam's book is fantastic. It it, it teaches you um, how those principles of causing good trouble, as he calls it, um, can be applied to your own working life, um, and organisational um, processes, really. And the follow-up is by Alex Barker, and it's equally good. It's called How to Be More Pirate. Um, and she she cites examples of organisations as unexpected as Mercedes, um, embracing the principles of, of piracy um, to try and... Um, do things a little a little differently and um and question the status quo and um allow dissent and and allow comment um it used to be i don't think many people realize but the captain of a pirate ship would only get about four times more booty than the cabin boy it was a very flat um society that they created they also created the first welfare state because if you lost an eye, an arm, or a leg, you'd be paid out in doubloons and found a job somewhere else on the ship. And um, it was, and, and there, there's an awful lot to learn from that. Yes, there are sort of examples of barbarism, but actually, the the worst thing a pirate ship could possibly do would be to get into a battle, which is why they terrified people to start with. Um, because if they had to. Be, Piracy was a hanging offence all around the world at that time. So if they had to go into harbour to replace a mast, then they, they'd run the risk of being caught and hung. So um, it was an intimidation um, tactic. Uh, if, if they could avoid fighting, they would. So it's a great read. I'd recommend it. Yeah, it, 
Yeah, it's really interesting um, as, as a way of thinking differently, um, of springboarding new ideas around um, what causing good trouble means, what positive disruption means. And I'm wondering, um, in your life, Mark, as musician and in creative marketing, whether you always felt instinctively more pirate do you, do you can you reflect on your own characteristics if you like um whether you were studying music working with orchestras or working in creative marketing that's a great question i hadn't really thought about that really i think i'm one of those people who doesn't um analyze things too greatly um i think i i think at the root of everything i've done over the last decades is the um is a kind of an innate sense of whether something's likely to be a good turn out to be a good idea um i think that's helped me enormously um i was only introduced to the concept of um corporate piracy if that makes sense um in in sam's book recently but it resonated with me straight away um yes i i, I love the you know the the, the suggestion that um, if, you, for example, in the in the book Twenty Two Immutable Laws of Marketing, Jack Reese has a rule which is: if you can't be first in your category, create a new category. And I do that a lot. Um, so uh, the artist I mentioned, she's no longer an artist; she's an oceanic artist, and she's one of very few comparatively. And that's really that. That's I think probably strong advice for anyone who's who's struggling or or. or um, to, to make progress is think about creating a new category that you can be the first in would be would be one so i, I do like that um the, the concept of innovating in that respect um not sure if that's a, a full and adequate answer to the question but i i'm i am more that more of a I, instinctively i think i'm more of a leader than a follower and if if you're I'm sitting at the centre of 85,000 arts and culture professionals around the world who, who some, some look to me for direction and, and I need to give it. And if that's, and I'm more than happy to do that. And I do that for many of our members if they've got a, a challenge. Um, if we've got time, um, there was a lovely lady who's in um, the Netherlands called Lisbeth Burkhout. And, um, she is a full member and she had some distress. She does lots of different things creatively. She does needle felting. She does jewellery design. She does uh, wonderful um, paper flower arrangements and she does animated digital art. And her challenge um, in that kind of portfolio stance was where to start when you have a conversation with somebody for the first time and how to try and how to explain that. She was finding that people weren't asking her questions because they, they couldn't they didn't have a hook on which to hang her in their own minds. And so we did a workshop together and it occurred to me that everything she does could be cons um, considered a tribute either to a much loved person, place or pet. So she got quite emotional at the end of our workshop because she now can introduce herself as a visual tribute artist and people lean in and ask her more questions straight away. And, that wasn't happening for her. So um, it's try, it's fra reframing what it is that you're doing in a way that has people leaning in and asking more questions. Yeah, and I, I am very interested in what feels like a very healthy openness and natural curiosity that perhaps helps you um, lean forward um, in all of these creative spaces uh, and including developing the network. And there's such significant studies now, particularly in relation to music and the role of improvisation um, in terms of healthy exercise for the brain, if you like, really interesting studies regarding neurology and music. And I, I'm curious whether... Um, those challenges, if you like, of constantly learning new pieces, your own improvisation as a musician has really lent itself well to being someone that's willing to explore, to try different things and to ask new questions. Yes, absolutely. I'm with you entirely on, on those. And there are countless studies that suggest that, for example, um, 
being a great stockbroker is not going to necessarily make you a great guitarist, but the opposite is the case <laughs> um, it, in, in some ways. that Yeah, there are countless studies that suggest that children who are exposed to the perhaps the rigors is not necessarily the right word but the the process of improving one's talent playing a musical instrument or singing or or dancing or acting um have a significantly beneficial impact on ev on how one approaches everything else that is needed to be learned in life um i certainly feel as though i benefited from that um it's unfortunate that that, that we don't quite have a, an education system that that recognises that or the support or the financial support to do that. And it used to be said, um, uh, and I paraphrase, that they'll invent it in the United Kingdom, they'll, they'll sell it in America and they'll copy it in China. As a nation, we've, we are missing a huge trick, I think. We've we we I mean the, the list goes on and on, but we sequenced DNA. We invented radio. We uh, we gave the world the World Wide Web. Um, we are an innovative um, country, um, full of creativity. You know, leading the world in in many industries, not least music and arguably theatre. Um, and what, but we are we're going to lose that competitive advantage if we don't prepare our, our children um, to to pick up the mantle in, in that. And that would be very sad, um, I think. Um, I've, I, I'm afraid I, I, I used to teach, but I, I used to tell my younger children, please don't get school, please don't let school get in the way of your education. Um, and that there is a, a gap, and it may well have been filled since, but I think one of the, the missing curriculum items in schools is is um, the joy of learning you know, and, and teaching children how to learn not necessarily a, a subject but what gets you excited what interests you and 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 how can you you know dive deeper into that experience and um, find something that you love and that you're good at because that's likely to steer you in the direction of, of a perfect of a happy career yeah, there, I mean, there is real serious, uh, really serious analysis now to the point where it's argued we're at risk of creativity in terms of developing the skills for creative thinking um, are actually being untaught, untaught through absence. And as you were a teacher, and I know you... Um, had uh, young students all around the world because you were able to deliver lessons online. And in view of this season being published on World Children's Day, I'm really interested in, in your insights as to why access to music for, for everybody and all children is important to every child. It's interesting, isn't it? I think um, if we go back centuries, music was... Um, before the advent of recording, um, music had to be performed to be heard, and I think one of the milestones, perhaps, is the is the the introduction of recordings, so that you could hear music without somebody having to be playing it in front of you. It, um, back in those um, days, then it, it was a it was a family event, you know, effectively. Um, so children. In, you know, centuries ago, were effectively brought up with um, as musicians and singers and actors because for, to have any music entertainment, um, one of the family members or the group members had to perform it. So it's been sort of bred out of us to a certain extent. Um, it, it, yeah, it's it's a it, it, we had a fascinating conversation at one of our events about six months ago, and the question posed was. Um, Music has become ubiquitous throughout the world in every society, yet it has no tangible survival benefit. Um, so there's something else, there's clearly something else going on there. Um, the great thing about music, of course, is that it requires no language. Um, it's borderless. Uh, and it, it, if you're involved with music or any arts and culture organisation or group, 
you're given perhaps the sense of belonging that our national, religious and political um, organisations are now failing to to, to deliver. And that's one of the comments I've had about the network, the fact that there are no borders in our community and that we don't have any national, religious or political alignment um, makes it a really open... um, And now that we're becoming collectively philanthropic as well. I'd like to think that by the end of the decade, we were offering a a really strong alternative to that. But um, there is a saying as well. um, Somebody said, difference breeds suspicion, suspicion breeds fear, fear breeds hatred, and hatred breeds violence. And my word, aren't we seeing that at the moment? Um, If you can just nip it in the bud at difference, you'll avoid all of the others. And so I think, and the arts and culture, drama, singing, um, making music are a perfect vehicle for, for backing up the, um, the education process in formative years to allow people to, to accept the fact that um, difference is a good thing and you needn't be frightened of it. Um, you know, we're all going to be the same colour one day, but at the moment... Um, Rejoice in that difference. And you know, I said to someone the other day, if and and accepting, because if um, if we hadn't welcomed Freddie Mercury's family as refugees as we did, um, we wouldn't have Bohemian Rhapsody now. You know. So, and there's another. I mean, I I was nearly I was really quite um, emotive when I heard somebody quote this, but it was the the best violinist the world has ever seen was never given the opportunity to pick one up. And when you think about it, oh, my gosh, what are all those missed opportunities? And we're, excuse me, we're lagging behind. I I read an article about Joe Cialo, who is, um, I think he's the head of arts and culture for Berlin. Yes, and I would love to interview you, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're working on it. Um, And Joe announced his budget for Berlin. Just the city of Berlin, as you know, as you know, Paula, um, 948 million euros for 2024. And he said it'll be well over a billion in 25. That's more than the whole Arts Council's grant, which and which is a which is absolute evidence that we're going to fall behind. Because and also it's such a critical statement and it's reflected in his title that it's clearly understood in terms of its value around social cohesion, cultural exchange, education, peacekeeping through cultural diversity, understanding, all of those things before the the huge economic value. I mean, even the UK has huge economic value in terms of the Rs and yet a government that doesn't support it. I read recently that the arts and culture sector makes more money for the Treasury than sport does. Yeah. In the UK. Yeah, yeah. And and also, um, you know, the, the, the Musicians Union ha- has noted that, um, you know, the music economy is in the billions You know, it's a really huge, significant contribution. And yet we now have musicians that can no longer easily tour Europe or, you know, um, it's it's such bizarre harm. Yes. Yeah. Which is why I I see um, if if the powers that be are not solving the problem, then we need other engines for doing that. And um, I'd like to think that ours was becoming one because if we get to the end of the decade with the network um, donating tens of thousands of pounds every month to, to good causes that we consider to be uh, worthy um, in, a, in a nominating and voting capacity, then um, it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a V sign to to those who should be doing it, um, and the the burden of um, the burden of, of applying and meeting evaluation report conditions. And it just deters so many people, especially those who need it the most. And um, it's, it's, it's all, that's all wrong. Um, so we're trying to de- democratize that 
So. Yeah, the Arts and Culture Network has a really valuable role and numerous opportunities, doesn't it? Um, in terms of the size of the community, a global community, diverse perspectives, to really help inform advocacy um, for all sorts of issues. When we look at um, this specific issue around um, arts cuts in education from schools through to universities, um, it's an opportunity to raise what we maybe don't hear clearly enough, that, for example, whilst... The current government describes art subjects, including music, as soft or fluffy, as as some as somehow lesser than a, a science subject. When actually the evidence uh, shows, studies show that musical training significantly enhances cognitive abilities. It enhances thinking, reading, learning, remembering, even um, the creativity, if you like, of, of solving complex maths problems. You know, there's a very important relationship between arts and science. It doesn't need to be a competition and it doesn't need to be divisive. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that, that We need creativity in every aspect of our professional lives. Um, there's a lovely comment made by um, Rory Sutherland, who is, I think, the chairman of Ogilvy now, um, he said, and he, he used to work, he's an advertising sort of, um, you know, character, huge, fantastic achievements. But he said, you know what, when in, in an agency, if, if the creative team want to try something new, they have to go and check with the finance team that it's okay to do it. But he said, isn't it funny, it doesn't work the other way. You know, um, and it's that sense that, um, you know, we, we just need to give everybody every chance to be creative. And part of that is 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 um, arts and culture disciplines, because it's um, it, it, it's that stepping stone into a into a different world for many and um, and something that they will value and cherish for life quite often. So, um, yeah. And, you know, I gather the creative industries in the UK are still one of the fastest growing. And you've got, if, you've, if you're looking at manufacturing or any of the other industries, then, um, you know, why would you not support that? It's already growing at, you know, one of the fastest rates. And it just seems really quite short-sighted um, not to. But what I'd love to get to a point where, and we've already hit the map a little bit because, the Arts and Culture Network was one of the potential answers in a in a publisher's um, survey recently, which I thought was lovely because that means we've we've, we've been noticed at least. Um, but it, it it'll really um, I think the real benefits will come when we get to a to the kind of point where global and national organisations want to speak to me and our members about what we think is going on because we seem to be doing it the right way. You know, and I, I think that that's that's something I'd love to find I could leave as a legacy that we'd effectively created a, a new vehicle from the bottom up, which is self-funded, self-governed, self-determining and um, uh, diverse, inclusive and borderless that you know, to um, to 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 rather to jump to, to coin your phrase to, to help save everything. You know, so. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's Galvin. I mean, the Arts and Culture Network it, it is is really important because, of course, apart from the opportunity of membership and opportunities, it's galvanising voices. It's exactly what you just said. It's an it's an opportunity to to unite in shared advocacy um, and to. Um, make a difference in terms of social impact, but also make a difference to the lives of artists in terms of how they survive. Um, be it political constraints, be it pandemic pressures, but being able to respond. And it's interesting because I know you've referred to Einstein um, in previous works. And of course, Einstein, um, one of his famous quotes is, I am enough of an artist to draw freely upon my imagination. Imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world and perhaps the arts and culture network 
is a way of encircling the world. I love that. Didn't he also say um, creativity is intelligence having fun? Yeah. You know, um, absolutely. I love that. That's a great quote. Yeah, and it and it is um, a really um, important reminder. Again, um, I know I've already mentioned it, but um, the sciences and the arts do not have to be competitive and it doesn't have to be divisive but that seems to be a characteristic a, a view of, of of the particular government we, we, we have in the UK for some reason uh, however contradictory um, uh, the information is um, it's also interesting when um, you think about the creative industries the arts creative marketing in terms of of um, perhaps a marketing phrase, intentional curiosity. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know whether um, it's something you're seeing coined, perhaps in the Arts and Culture Network, but the idea of um, intentional curiosity is to remember to embrace curiosity, to ask questions, to be open but not become so fragmented that you perhaps um, lose sight of, of a name um, in your creative business marketing at the same time. But what I really like about that phrase, intentional curiosity, is it supports the importance of why we need to be curious. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. But there's also this wonderful Buddhist concept of Shoshan, S-H-O-S-H-I-N, which is um, the capacity that we have to approach subjects with the mind of a child. And computers can't do that, but we can. Uh, it was one of the five things that one of our members talked about in one of our meetings, that we'll all, always be able to do better than our computer. Um, because, for example, my wife is very good at Excel and I'm very bad at Excel, but if she's got a problem with something, she'd rather talk to me about it as a non-expert than, um, than somebody who considers themselves to be an expert because the options are narrowed in those circumstances. And quite often she'll be explaining a problem to me and because she's got to explain it in such simple terms for me to understand it, she sees the answer before she's finished the question. And I love the, the, that sort of natural um, breadth of, op of options that children have. And um, the, the philosophy is based on the assumption that if you think you know it all, you won't be able to see all the possible answers. And children don't do that. Um, a lovely example was when my daughter and I, when she was much younger, we were lying to bed in, lying in bed together on a Sunday morning and um, staring at a white ceiling. And she said, let's play I Spy. I think she must have been five or six. And I looked at the white ceiling and I thought, well, this is going to be a short game. Um, <laughs> and she said, I spy with my little eye something beginning with you. And... I could not work. I, mean, I gave up. I said, I'm sorry, hon, I can't, can't think. And she said, us, silly. So <laughs> you know, and the, what, three years later, she, she wouldn't have done that because that kind of um, capacity to be, to think differently and, and literally not stay in the, in the lane that you've been given is lost as as children get older and it, and it continues to, to to be lost so that we get to a point where as experts in a certain subject we think we know the answers um but actually our options are narrowed and i think that's probably what's happening in in some governmental or um positions of authority that that, that think it's um that they think they've got the answers and they need to ask a few more five-year-olds what they would do. Um, yeah, yeah. It really does point. It does. It really does point um, back to um, something uh, uh, we talked about earlier that there is serious risk of creativity being untaught. And if you like, that's a really nice example when you embrace the child's mind when you remember to re-embrace your own child's mind, you know, to play uh, games, um, I spy, looking at a white ceiling, but actually to come up with something fun and playful and then take those same principles um, throughout your life to not make your creative thinking, your playfulness so narrow mm -hmm. that you 
you wouldn't even see that much. And I think it really, what you were just saying really points back to that. There is a serious risk of creativity being untaught because it's more than the skills of any one artistic um, uh, tradition or, or interest that you have. It's equally as important to think about how we think, the creativity of thinking and remembering we can learn to think in new ways and different ways. One of those ways is embracing the child's mind. Yes. There was a lovely um, comment. I can't remember who made it, but um, as a teacher was um, had asked um, their, their young children to do a picture of someone they liked. Um, and one little girl was approached by the teacher and uh, he said, who are you doing a picture of? And she said, I'm, I'm doing a picture of God. And he said, well, I'm afraid nobody really knows what God really looks like. And she said, they will soon. it's so so helpful you know it's it's that it's that kind of um it's that kind of approach that sort of that um almost they're oblivious and uh to the common sense that gets bashed into us as we grow and and it's great and of course with an aging population um you know, I know I read somewhere that men are at their peak at 19 years old and in Dickensian London were dead by the time they were 50. Um, somebody once, somebody told me recently that the first person to reach 150 years old has already been born because, it, you know, by the time we get there, that'll be the, the, the yeah. age expectancy. So <laughs> but we'll be, yeah. you know, we'll probably spend the last 50 years not using, not having brains that are any much much use to anybody so we we absolutely underestimate the power of young people um and um but we've got it's the formative years it's those early you know it's primary school stuff really where you can set a child up for life both the wrong way and the right way um, yeah, and I think that example you just gave of, of the the little girl um, drawing her picture of God. What's what's such a useful, important point about that is she wasn't shut down. It wasn't a conversation of well, you can't draw a picture of God because no one knows what God looks like. That's it. End of conversation. Shut mm-hmm. down. Joyously, her child's mind simply said, well, they will soon because she she could still be free, open, curious enough and still express those ideas. And I think as as simple as that example is, it really does speak to the importance of the arts in terms of staying open, curious, willing to be part of cultural exchange. I think I I have a granddaughter who's... Uh, 20 months old and I was interested in seeing something I I saw recently which was um, a child sings before she speaks she dances before she walks and um, it's it's such an important and um, natural uh, capacity the, the the idea of creative performing arts visual arts literary arts later on but they um but those are and for for somebody to suggest that the sciences are more important and tangible when when you look at children learning through play and um singing and dancing and and wanting to grab a musical instrument it's all there um we don't all have to go on to become professional musicians or actors or dancers but um or any other pursuit across the arts and, and culture sector but it does. It's it's one of the few things we can do that enriches our lives um, comparatively inexpensively, and um, it, it's a real it's a real shame that it isn't considered a you know in, in the ideal world it, we, we our schools would be um, centred and founded around um, childhood creativity, and out of that will come great scientists. Yeah, and I'm really interested when we think about you as a six-year-old beating hell out of mum's saucepans, um, but your progression into music as a young child, as a young adult. um, That Would you say you ever felt um, particularly 
challenge, but in a way that was exciting, that was about exercising curiosity, that was actually exercising your brain, your neuroplasticity. Um, Do you remember a time where you thought you had to be really courageous, but it was but it was for something that um, was positively challenging um, in your in your younger years when you were first learning drums and percussion or performing early on in your career? Um, yes, I, th- I think when, when as a kind of 11-year-old, you suddenly find yourself sitting behind the kettle drums in a symphony orchestra with other people, most of them are older than you. Um, it, it, that can be... That's quite a challenge, but of course a very positive experience, and it set me up enormously. Um, and then my final recital for my um, at the at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama was a was a challenge because we were required to do it all from memory, pretty much. And um, that that process was was one of that required me to to do all sorts of right um, right brain things um, like planning and scheduling rehearsals and getting you know learning things um yeah and of course when you bring it together in as an as an ensemble um in an orchestra or a um a group um then you know it's got a you're then dependent on on that working alongside what other people are doing so not only does it treat you your own self-discipline of a learning regime and 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 the excitement and nerves and and anxious feelings that you might feel around a, a live performance at which you're the center of attention then the relief and the pleasure of 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 having achieved that is is enormous um and then i think the the associated board of the royal schools of music with who i've had a long standing relationship um as both a teacher and a digital marketing consultant um they have a ladder for learning uh, through the graded systems for musical instruments and kids love those you know getting those certificates um you know the, the instrumental music teachers have their varying opinions about testing you know or trying to compare um one musical performance with another but it does provide that kind of aspirational ladder of learning and when people get to grade eight they think yes you know I've, I've done it and, and sitting behind that is hours and hours of practice and lessons that they've that, that that person has been able to sustain with that goal in mind and there aren't that many other um i don't think people feel quite the same about other subjects that they might be learning it's and of course it's something that um they'll have for for life, you know, that capacity to play the piano at a party when you're in your 50s actually is quite nice. You know? um, so, yeah, it's it's under, underrated and underappreciated. And I think it's sad to see that we, we've shifted emphasis, really. Yeah, um, there, there are incredible um, examples of... Uh, when you were mentioning the capacity, you know, at, at 90, for example, to still be playing piano, um, it's testimony to that evidence uh, how music in that example or the arts uh, really does keep our neurology uh, healthy. Um, I don't know if you saw a fascinating documentary called The Possibilities Are Endless. Um, it's with the rock musician Edwin Collins that suffered two devastating strokes that he really was not expected to survive. It's an absolutely superb documentary because it's about his recovery against all the odds. Obviously, there were gruelling years of rehab and physio, but the point being, years later, he has once again recorded an album and he also emerged interestingly as a left-handed artist even though he was right-handed before the stroke and all of these things are so you know are, are testimony important testimony to evidence around the arts health well-being in numerous ways now I know that I'm probably saying far too much because we've raced through our hour. I just wondered if I could finish off with a couple more questions with you, Mark. Um, these hours always seem to go so fast. Um, but one thing I'd like to um, just uh, uh, quickly ask you about is um, your involvement in uh, the immersive 
theatre production of Jungle Book. I'm a huge fan of Jungle Book. It was probably one of my most early cinema experiences and love it to this day. So I just wondered what your creative involvement was there in terms of this immersive theatre production. That's very kind of you. Yeah, the um, Jungle Book is um, a new theatrical production um, from... Kerry Jewell, who is a producer in uh, based in Brisbane, in Australia, he's one of our full members as well, and that's why I got to hear about it. Um, he's uh, got a wonderful plan. Um, the The show will be uh, the the animal characters in the show will be uh, played by animatronics, um, so that they'll be um, it'll be the team um, that do Walking with Dinosaurs. How to Train Your Dragon, the Arena Show, um, and other and King Kong, for example, on stage. So that that's very exciting. Um, more exciting, perhaps, is the fact that those animals will be voiced by Hollywood stars. So um, I'll probably get my fingers chopped off if I mention any names, but that, that but but every one of them is is a name that people will recognise. Um, Cleverly, they don't have to be there every night, but they'll be there in their voice and their their, their motion capture in the in the animals. Um, and and then there will be two characters who will be on stage, uh, Mowgli and uh, Rudyard Kipling as the narrator. And um, so he's been rather clever at um, making sure that it's not going to be too horribly expensive. And so we need quite a few. Um, pennies to get to opening night, which will either be in late next year or early 25 in Mumbai, appropriately. And the show will then tour Southeast Asia and Australia and if it, if and then come into London and New York. And I've had conversations I, um, with um, the people behind Stomp and Hamilton, um, and they're all very excited to see what what this emerge. Um, so. It's yeah, it's an exciting. Um, I'm executive producer in that respect, which is a shorthand for help me find people with lots of money, Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we've had yeah, we've uh, the people who backed Hamilton are interested, um, and so it's just a case of um, securing that. He's rather cleverly insured the show against abandonment. So if for any reason the show doesn't uh, open as planned, then all the investors get their money back through that insurance policy, um, but it's 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 great. I mean, it's, you know, I'm very excited about it. So um, I'm doing everything I can to help him um, find those investors for the show, um, and any kind of um, commission that that produces will be ploughed back into the fund that we're building for the Arts and Culture Network donations. So that's um, very exciting. So. Yeah, wonderful. And so, of course, um, I should end on the series question. Can art save us? Um, little else is likely to. So, um, <laughs> uh, yes, is it, it, it has to. Um, you know, as, 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 as the digital world continues to... Um, progress um, and we are still my I'm of the opinion that digital technology is is still taking up more of our time than it is saving us so when it finally hits that tipping point um, and we start using digital technology sensibly to to um, to find more time we can get all get back to being the, the creative species that we are in, um, and and we'll see a new renaissance in human creativity when digital is a tool, not a distraction. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. And of course, a huge thank you for all of the interesting points you've made, sharing your time today when you spin so many plates and have so many members in this fast-growing community uh, at the uh, Arts and Culture Network, um, where I know as a member, uh, you uh, create huge amounts of time in order to talk to absolutely everybody individually um, and really 
you really are creating a mission um, from blood, sweat and tears. So thank you very much, Mark, for joining me today. That's very kind. Those were some fantastic questions, Paula, that um, I always enjoy um, being being made to think a bit harder in, a, in an interview like that so thank you for that that was great fun oh that's really generous and I'm really I'm really pleased to hear it I suppose when you talk about point of difference what I'm really trying to do or one of the things I'm trying to do is at least respect the guests with deep research and for the listeners I would just like to say Remember, this is a free-to-listen podcast. It's part of pushing out the elitism of arts access. Please share the podcast, particularly where you know cuts are deep and access is difficult. Thank you very much, Mark, and I will ensure that your links in the Arts and Culture Network is visible on your episode page. That's very kind. Thank you again, Paula.